this gives me an epiphany. This is actually a big life epiphany that I think I'll remember for the rest of my life. I'm thinking of it right now. I probably reached out to hundreds of potential mentors through this seven-year journey. People who I wanted to learn from, people I cold emailed for advice. The two that not only became the mentors that changed my life, but are still you know, my closest friends, Cal Fussman and Elliot Bisno, are the two I can vividly remember not giving me advice upon first meeting me, but instead asking questions. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is about mentorship and how being a mentor to someone else can make your own career stronger in ways you might never have predicted before you became a mentor. I talk with Cal Fussman in this episode. He's the iconic Esquire writer and host of the Big Questions podcast, which debuted the same week as Deviate three years ago. Joining us in this conversation is best-selling author Alex Benayan, who I interviewed back in episode 87 of this podcast. And if you recall in that episode, part of its charm was that even as Alex and I talked about famous people like Bill Gates, who he was trying to interview for his book, The Third Door, the writing influence of Cal Fussman kept coming up again and again in the conversation. It goes back to an original question about mentors, and Cal Fussman saved my life. And I don't use that phrase lightly. Um, The reason my life is what my life is right now is because of Cal Fussman. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And God, there was, I'm sure there's still a lot I don't know that I don't know, but boy, when I met him, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I'm sure, you know, if I didn't meet him, the third door would have come out and helped some people, but I am extremely confident that uh, the book would not have helped as many people as it's currently helped without Cal. I'm curious to know as a teacher, and and sorry if I'm interrupting you here, but as a teacher, I'm curious to know um, if Cal, as your mentor, gave you specific advice like, yeah, there's too much information in this chapter. The information is fine. (laughs) We we need more tension. We need, because I noticed like- Yes, yes, yes. It's as if you were eavesdropping in all our conversations. Everything you're saying so far is 100% accurate. Yeah. For yeah. better or for worse. <laughs> because even the Bill Gates, like you're learning this stuff from Bill Gates, but it's very clear the way that you oh write God. that chapter, uh, you, you, it's like first you're asking uh, two complicated questions and, and that, that chapter arcs from sort of formal interview to informal interview. And I'm, and I'm, I'm curious to know, was that, was that the hand of Cal or had you got your instincts down? The hand, that is a great book title. The hand of Cal. Okay. If I ever write a book on Cal, that's actually a good... Larry King calls it the Fussman factor, but I think the hand of Cal is actually much, much better. Cal and his positive influence on Alex came up so many times in our conversation that when I visited Los Angeles over the winter, I decided to put both of them into a room together, not just so they could talk about their own creative relationship, but about mentor-mentee relationships in general. Not just what happens when those relationships go right, but just as importantly when and why they can go wrong. Part of the fun of this conversation is that Cal and Alex never directly talked about this dynamic of their relationship, so it was fun to sit in a room with them while they figured out why their friendship ended up being so positive for both of them. We talk about everything that Cal did for Alex, of course, but we also talk about the way Alex and his younger perspective helped rejuvenate Cal's career. 
And even though that aspect of being a mentor can feel like lip service, you really do get a concrete sense for how much Cal benefited from his mentorship to Alex. In addition to mentorship, we talk a lot about the mechanics of storytelling and the human vulnerabilities that go into the most effective storytelling. We talk about how the act of writing differs from the act of thinking about writing. And Cal and Alex share lots of tips, not just about writing, but how to best approach mentor-mentee relationships in your own life. This is a standalone episode, though if you're curious, you might want to go back and listen to my earlier interview with Alex in episode 87 to get some context. If nothing else, just remember that Alex's book involved approaching and interviewing famous and influential people like Bill Gates and Maya Angelou, and that some of these less than successful encounters come up again and again in the conversation, most notably Alex's humiliation in trying to hack a Q&A at a Warren Buffett shareholders meeting in Omaha. This episode is brought to you by Tortuga, who makes backpacks and backpack accessories for people taking long-term journeys. Go to rolfpotts.com tortuga to see a selection of their travel packs. And if you see something you like, that rolfpotts.com tortuga address will automatically qualify you for 10% off the price of your order at checkout. All right, here's Cal Fussman and Alex Benayan talking about how their mentor-mentee relationships achieved a kind of chemistry that enhanced both of their careers and how you might best achieve this kind of chemistry in your own business and creative relationships. Let's listen in. Penguin Random House, they've never signed a 20-year-old business author before. And I told them, trust me. (laughs) (laughs) You were 20 when that sold. I was was pitching it at 19, and then I was 20 when it sold a couple months later. Yeah. You know, it's the classic Reed Hoffman, an entrepreneur as someone who jumps off a cliff and builds the airplane on the way down. My issue was I genuinely felt in my heart I knew how to build an airplane. And then while I was falling, (laughs) all I could think about is that I'm going to die. (laughs) And that's the... That's the difference between an entrepreneur and a con artist. A con artist knows it's a con. Huh. I would think, maybe. And I, I genuinely, in my heart, was very... I I really, when I sold Third Door, the premise, I really thought I was going to pull it off. And when I started working on it, to my surprise, all the people that I thought were guaranteed interviews, you know, Bill Gates, you know, everyone said no. And then even when I started getting the interviews and I started to write, I didn't realize how far I was from making this good. Um, so when I met Cal, it was sort of like being lost at sea in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, no raft, spitting up water. You've been there for 63 days and a guy comes in a canoe and says, you can come on one condition. It doesn't matter what the condition is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I'll give myself some credit. I was at least self-aware that that was my situation. Right. I know a lot of other authors are like, I'll keep swimming. No, thank you. I, I got this. I understood that this guy is a professional kayaker. Well, in a, in a way, it was easy for you to say yes because you were in the water and, and, and Cal has a lot of mileage you know, under his belt as a writer. Uh, but what about you? What, of, of all the young people, is, is, that's, is the big, the that, only... that's the big question that everyone asks me. Why yeah. did that kayaker pick me up yeah. when there's thousands of other people drowning that he passes every day? No. <laughs> when that was the funny thing, because I was, when we met, 
and not like not many people know this, but he was teaching me as much about social media and this new world as much as I was teaching him the structure of writing a book and uh, just going through all the rewrites and learning patiently how to write sentences, how to end the sentence, how to end the paragraph. And I mean, those things take years to learn. And he basically had no time to learn. Make the argument for being a mentor, because I think a lot of people are listening and it's like, oh, if I just had Cal Fussman to help me with my book. But in fact, it sounds like you're saying that this has benefited you a lot too. Completely changed my life. It's just funny how life works. I was at my lowest point of the journey because I had just uh, spent eight months trying to get to Warren Buffett. And it ended up as a giant disaster. I ended up hacking a shareholders meeting and I was at my lowest point. And at my lowest point, you know, if there's one theme from this book, it's that it would be my best friends who would pull me back up. And one of my best friends said, let's go get, you know, sandwiches at this grocery store. And sure enough, while we were sitting on the sidewalk talking about how miserable I am and how I have no hope, this car pulls up and out walks Larry King. And if you're anything like me, that's actually when I get the most terrified, when things line up that perfectly. I'm actually much better when things are going wrong and I have to, you know, push my way. When things line up perfectly, that's when I freeze. Um, you know, I call it the flinch. And I ended up chasing Larry King through this grocery store and sort of, imposing myself asking if I can go to breakfast with him and he very reluctantly said yes and when I show up at breakfast um, and I finally you know get the chance to meet him I tell him about the book and he says yes I'll do an interview but I'm not the person you need to talk to and he points to this guy sitting next to him in this baseball cap and a hoodie and he says this is who you want to talk to and I thought to be, I don't know if I told you, I thought, oh, and he probably was. I thought he was pushing me off. He was definitely pushing me <laughs> off. He was like, Cal, Cal, give the kid five minutes, okay? And then come back to the table, please. Um, man. <laughs> but, but you got to realize, he gets this every day, people huh? are coming up to the breakfast table, and I've been having breakfast with Larry every day since I came up to help him write his book in 2008. So I'm seeing this happen every day. And quite often, Larry would say, can you give him five minutes? And I would do it. And this time when this was different. Our five minutes turned into three hours that first morning. Yeah. And now we're sitting together at a, at a table in Alex's house years later. So what was, what was special? What did you see in Alex then? So what happened is, so I'm thinking, okay, five minutes. And I went over. I sat down and I asked him, are heroes dead? Is that your first thing you said to him? Yeah. Wow. And he said, no. And we got into a conversation about this. Well, I told him who my heroes are and he said, uh, you just proved my point. I've never heard of either of those three people. <laughs> I told him three people. But, but I, my point was, look, like we're losing Nelson Mandela. We're Muhammad losing Ali. Muhammad Ali. Uh, and... I don't know who the heroes are going forward. And so Alex saying, I said, who are your heroes? And he you said, who he said? Yeah, oh yeah. I remember. I remember. He said, Elliot Biznow. Elliot Biznow. And he says, 
Tim Ferriss? Tim Ferriss? Who is Tim Ferriss? I never heard of this guy. And he says, well, he's got a podcast and millions of people listen nope. every week. Tony Shea. Mentioned Tony Shea. That's right. Gary Vaynerchuk. Right. Which when I was a freshman in college, this was, these were in my head, the people who figured it out. To me. To me. I, I had no idea who, who any of these people were. And then I'm saying, how can they be heroes? We don't have no idea who they are. And so the, the conversation went for three hours. It, it just took off in a lot of directions, made me very curious. And then when he was explaining what he was doing with <laughs> the certainty that in six months he was going to be talk, sitting down with Oprah Winfrey and uh, just this a collection of people that it, it takes like Larry King a lot of time to put on the schedule. I'm just thinking, like, this is just crazy. He's in a lot of trouble. Huh. So we l left that day with me giving him that advice that, you know, I really don't think you're going to get Oprah Winfrey in the next six months. Uh, these things are going to take a lot of time. And then you got to learn to write. Well, I want to get to the learn to write thing in a second because I saw what I interpreted as some cinematic tropes that were very effective in that book. But I'm curious to know about your first Alex Benign moment because... Um, I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, you know, Larry King set the pick, you know. Oh, right. He set the, the Cal Fussman pick, which is sort of a five-minute, half-five-minute frame. Three hours later, you guys were still talking. And then years later, we're sitting at a table in, in Venice, California. So... What did you, and, and clearly you learned a lot and it was a very productive relationship for you and, and continues to be. So in that three hours, what shifted in you to think, oh, maybe I could be a mentor? Or had you done mentorship before? No, I never really. And did, you, did that thought even cross your mind in the first meeting or was it months into it? Because I... I felt like I was pulling out a thread slowly. It didn't feel like an epiphany mm -hmm. in that first meeting. So I just saw myself kind of editing for him, I didn't see myself mentoring him. I, mentoring is a word that's kind of come about lately. I don't think we use the word mentoring much in the 70s or the 80s. Hmm. It's definitely a word of this century. Well, I think maybe the, the free range mentor is new to this century too, because I could be wrong. I'm curious to know what you guys think. Um, the mentorship may have happened in a in a tighter vertical, like you at Esquire, for example. Part of the charm of your first question for Alex is that his answer was people you'd never heard of, but in a way that was very instructive for you because um, we're both friends with Tim Ferriss now, a guy who you didn't even know. Tim about Ferriss him. changed my life. Yeah, well, well, completely changed my life, and Alex was the one who connected me with Tim. I brought, Larry, I brought Tim to breakfast with Cal and Larry when Tim just launched his podcast. He had the first like five episodes live. And I was thinking maybe he might want some interviewing prowess. Not for me, but from Cal and Larry. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. Tim came to breakfast, I think it's fair to say, to meet Larry. Yeah. He didn't know who Cal was. Um, but I literally remember sitting at that breakfast table. I remember exactly where I was sitting. And I could see a shift in energy from Tim's attention, realizing that this guy, Cal, 
was really the person who had the answers that he needed. Yeah. Because Tim isn't a broadcaster. He was really sort of, uh, he's like a mi- mining for gold in people. Yes. And that's what Cal's good at too. And, and Tim is good at that too because I'm, even when I interviewed him for my very first podcast, you know, concurrently right. when you were launching your podcast, I sat next to his pool in Austin and he didn't have notes. He basically gave a masterclass on podcasting for two hours. And so he has fine-tuned, he's a teacher in that he learns these things very seriously himself. And if you listen to early Tim Ferriss episodes of his podcast, it's sort of a different tone. It's a different, it's, it's, it's a looser machine um, than it has become. Yeah, I think there were times where he was drinking. Uh, it was very different than it is, is now. And he was also looking for like a critique. What could I do better? How would I ask different questions? And, and it, was, it was early in the cycle for him. And it wasn't hard for me to make suggestions that he immediately got. I said, thanks. And then he asked me to come on as a guest. And we sat down and just started talking. And I just basically told stories for three hours. And then there was this amazing response. In his interview demeanor? Uh, No, from the the people who were listening. And all these people were writing in. (laughs) Who is this guy? Because... Remember, I'm very under the radar. That was his first big, Cal's first big public. Right. So you. As, as, a, as Cal, yeah. he's always written as Larry King, as, right. you yeah. know, George Foreman, as Muhammad Ali. He's never said, I'm Cal, this is my story. Like after that, he said, like, you've got to have a podcast and I'll show you how backward and frightened of technology I was. He had a Zoom H6 with like wires and you needed to do like audio checks. And I'm thinking, oh man, that, that's, I'm not into technology. Were you holding a mic? I did, Tim gave me a mic to hold. Okay. Uh, but like Alex can tell you, I had no like Twitter. Yeah. I had no Facebook. I had, I didn't have anything. What we would do is Cal and I would meet for editing sessions and we would edit for like two and a half hours. For the final like half hour, I would create these, his, Cal Fussman yeah, put Twitter me on LinkedIn. Up. We would yes. pretty much spend the final hour. Like maybe we would do two hours editing, one hour like technology consulting. <laughs> I love this. This is, this is good for me to hear. And I think it'll be good for a lot of my listeners here that I've used the phrase get off my lawn a lot of times in this season of the podcast because mm-hmm. There's sort of a, a nostalgia texture to, to a lot of what I'm talking about. And then sometimes in the context of travel, I'll complain about the way that smartphones have, have diluted travel to a certain extent. But I think maybe get off my lawn, which is itself a metaphor, is not as good as, well, hey there, young fellow. what? Why are you on my lawn? Why are you on my lawn? <laughs> Do you have any tips for making it greener? I haven't, I haven't mastered that metaphor yet, but it feels like... It was essential that he, that it, we should never shut doors on people younger than us. This gives me an epiphany. This is actually a big life epiphany that I think I'll remember for the rest of my life. I'm thinking of it right now. I probably reached out to hundreds of potential mentors through this seven-year journey. People who I wanted to learn from, people I cold emailed for advice. The two 
that not only became the mentors that changed my life, but are still you know, my closest friends, Cal Fussman and Elliot Bisno, are the two I can vividly remember not giving me advice upon first meeting me, but instead asking questions. Cal? Oh, there you go. I went, I didn't sit down with Cal to tell him anything. I went to learn from him. And instead, with, and it wasn't a shtick. It's just who he is. He said, our hero's dead. Elliot Bisno started asking me about my process. How are you funding this book? And then Elliot's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, uh, I think a good mentor can see who the mentee is before the mentee can see who the mentee is. And that may be the case. I, I, I didn't really think of it in terms of mentoring. I thought but I was, it's your instincts to ask yeah, questions. That's right. I just saw he needs some help. And also, it's a great idea. And maybe I felt what the acquiring editor understood that if this is executed right, right this can be a great okay. book. But that was maybe on our third meeting, we even got there. I would say the first two meetings were really about, I remember the first thing I ever emailed you is I promised you, I was like, all right, I'll send you this email with a YouTube link of a Tony Shade talk and a YouTube link of a Tim Ferriss talk. Um, and I think, or a Gary Vaynerchuk talk. And I think those were the first two things I sent you. And you watched them. First of all, it's very rare to meet someone very accomplished who meets a stranger, asks them questions, one, and then actually follows up and follows their curiosity so there was that curiosity instinct that maybe Alex is saying he that was your response to him initially. And actually, I think that that has rooted itself in Alex, too, because when I interviewed you for my podcast and I told my story about how Tim Ferriss actually didn't really follow the rules that he gave you the first time he emailed me, you started asking questions, right? I think this is one maybe one thing that mentors and mentees should both remember is that you have, everybody has permission to ask questions, you know, in part because people and you guys can disagree with me, might be more inclined to give advice rather than to have a conversation. Giving advice comes from ego. Hmm. When I first met Cal, he wasn't, it wasn't the Cal Fushman show where he was trying to, you know, drop knowledge upon me. And it, No, I was just trying to figure out how to help him. <laughs> and, and the other thing about it, which I, I should have pointed out, that first day, I also told him, look, I'm not going to write a single word of your book. I'm curious to know what form your advice took. Because one thing I noticed, and it could be that I just use film metaphors when speaking of writing structure, is that it had a, it was sort of a five chapter book, like a five act screenplay. And then the midpoint was getting an agent and being able to get the, the interview with Bill Gates. The Dark Knight of the Soul was, uh, was Warren Buffett, oh right? And then a lot of the scenes really played out in conflict. You, you really made the reader suffer through a lot of those scenes and, and sort of embrace your own failures. And when I talked to Alex last time, I, I got the sense that that was the hand of Cal, right? Um, is this, this is something, it's really amazing when you look at business people who go to write their books. And I don't think Alex was any different in, in this regard. The idea is to look good. You have a business. It's we're putting our best face on. It's and, a brochure. They write a brochure. 
And now you're saying, no, no, you don't understand. If you're telling a story, then you have to understand a story is based on vulnerability, which means that you're lost. You're in the mud. You're crawling through the mud. You need a mentor to give you some advice that you can use to go forward, but still there's gonna be more obstacles and you're gonna to have to get through them. And then ultimately you'll have to confront the biggest obstacles on a path to transformation. Business people don't wanna be put through the mud. And this is a business book, but I am thinking about it like through years of reading fiction. So that's what I'm kind of pushing his way. This is a narrative. Like if you and like we both have read The Alchemist and everybody loves The Alchemist. I've never met somebody who said, oh, that's a terrible book. And it's pure storytelling that moves the reader from one chapter to the next. And that's all I was trying to push in his direction. And very different for difficult for business people to swallow that. And it was difficult for him. They're like, what do you mean? I'm going to look bad? It was even more than that, though. There were painful things that happened on my journey that I hadn't even processed yet myself. The amount of shame and pain that I was working. And well, this is the thing about our writing well, sessions you, you too. Gotta, you got to uh, tell the story yeah. about the, the shoe well, yeah, because that that was a moment where like okay, he didn't okay. understand <laughs> what was happening. Let's clear some karma. To, Let's clear he, some karma. And he tells this story and I look at him and say like, what? And yes, that's what he would say. <laughs> Cal, I, I, Cal is a very empathetic friend. He is a ruthless, heartless editor. <laughs> And what I mean by that is when he's in writing mode, he's only thinking, how do we make this story great? And when his, when he smells blood in the form of a great plot line, he does not care that I am a vulnerable 22-year-old who was conned by someone I trusted. I haven't processed. He's like, Oh boy! And he go. He well, hold. You tell the shoe story. Just tell the shoe. They. You got to tell the shoe story because I can give you my reaction to it, and it really explains a whole dynamic here. And tell the story so that my listeners who haven't read your book can sort of understand the stakes and the the arc here. The stakes are that my biggest dream in life was to go on this mission to interview the world's most successful people. And included in that, my holy grail was to interview Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And on my quest to get to Warren Buffett, I met a man named Dan Babcock who told me that he was, speaking of mentors, Warren Buffett's mentee. And this guy essentially became my inside man, my key to the kingdom of interviewing Warren Buffett and I was so desperate to achieve my dream. I dropped out of college. I, my parents weren't talking to me. My, my grandma was crying. My entire life sort of, it felt like hinged on this. This guy, Dan Babcock started telling me some interesting advice. Um, he was going to get Alex 
to Bill Gates, um, to Warren, Warren Buffett. Buffett. And I just said I would, again, drowning in the ocean, a guy with a kayak comes. Wow, this is, talk about a full circle metaphor. A guy came up with a kayak, said, I'm an Olympic kayaker. And I said, can I get on? And he said, of course. It felt to me the same as when I met Cal. This person's going to save me. I'm drowning. And he knew Warren Buffett really well. Air quotes. <laughs> I was doing air quotes here. <laughs> and I was so desperate. And one of the big lessons I learned is that desperation clogs intuition. He started getting me to do things uh, that didn't really add up. Like, for example, he told me, you know, after my like, 10th rejection from Buffett. Literally, Buffett's reading letters and rejecting me. It's not like an assistant. And the first time, it's nice. He sends him yeah. back like a handwritten it was sweet. note. Yeah, it was like, a sweet Sorry, rejection. Alex, but this has already been mine before. It's out there, but thank you so much. So it's not like it was a smack in the face. He actually went out of his way to say, thank you, but I can't right now. And Alex just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And well, this guy Dan said, You're 99% there, keep going. And he knew Buffett, so if the guy who knows Buffett says you're 99% there, I'm gonna keep going. And six months in, you know, I'm digging my grave, but thinking I'm at the 99 yard line. And this guy Dan at the end is like, You know what you gotta do? You gotta send Warren Buffett's assistant a shoe. That's exactly what I look like. (laughs) Go ahead. And even I, and even I was like, no, a shoe? And he goes, trust me, send a shoe with a note saying, trying to get my foot in the door. (laughs) And I'm like, that that is what my face looked like when I hear this. I tell this to Cal, like maybe on like my 15th edit of the Warren Buffett chapter. It wasn't in the first like 15 edits. And, you know, we're two, it's like 11 p.m. at a coffee bean, and I'm telling Cal this story. And Cal's like, oh boy. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 Cal, this is an in, insignificant part of the story. He's like, this is the story. <laughs> the shoe. This section of the book is called The Shoe. <laughs> Cal is the opposite of a therapist who makes you process your uh, trauma in healthy ways. Cal goes, oh boy. He pops champagne when he hears things like this. Because as a writer, that's his instinct. He got he got the story. Well, yeah, there, that's he got the, whole the story. chapter. Right. Yeah. But but he didn't even realize at that point like he had some intuition like are you sure I should send the shoe? But it was in that moment when I think he realized oh man the guy completely conned me. And rather than me thinking uh oh, they're like it's too bad and I'm thinking this is great because I know it's going to move the chapter. So that's the whole dynamic I was talking he about. He didn't have any no regard. Remorse. He had no, no remorse. No at all. remorse. I was happy. But but this <laughs> is well, this is what a good editor mentor is. He had no regard for my personal shame and guilt. Well, this goes back to fictional things. Probe the wound. Like in in a, in a, in, a, in a novel, if you want the reader to identify with the, a, a character with a wound, Probe the wound, twist the knife, and it sounds like that's yeah, a version yeah. of what Cal is asking. <laughs> but I, but Cal's doing it to the character Alex in the book. But that to me, <laughs> I hadn't learned how to disconnect from 
the written material. To me, it was still... Because I hadn't processed it myself. No, just in that moment is when he realized oh, how con shit, and how I implicit, how complicit I was in being duped. Real quick, what was the fallout of the shoe incident? Were shoes mailed? Were, was a oh, shoe company? Yeah, yeah, he, he sent a shoe. I I was he in Omaha. It, just so the listener knows. I yeah. went to the Salvation Army store. <laughs> bought because I wasn't I couldn't go to Ross. I didn't have enough money, so I went to the Salvation Army store. <laughs> And got two shoes. They didn't. I asked if they sold one on their own because to save money. And they said no. We sell them in pairs. So I buy two shoes. Get one of the shoes because Dan insisted make it just one so they know it's a joke. So, <laughs> and I wrote just trying to get my foot in the door and sent it to Warren. Actually, I didn't mail it. I because I was in Omaha, hand delivered it to the lobby. I then emailed the following day, Buffett's assistant, to see if my gift came through. And she said, please, in, a, in very kind, I have to give her credit, in very kind words, please leave me alone. So in a way, what was the emotion you felt when you realized? That- At the time, today, right now? <laughs> well, he, he hadn't processed the fact that he had been duped. Yes, but it almost feels like maybe humiliation or other very yes, strong yes. emotions. Shame, humiliation. from including that in the narrative. Also guilt for my role in... I, I This guy who duped me didn't go out of his way to dupe me. I heard a rumor that he knew Buffett, so I sort of tracked him down and almost manipulated... Not almost, manipulated... Try to pushed manip- and pushed and pushed. Cultivate an inauthentic friendship just to try to get something out of him. That's so there's so no, there's guilt in my role, yeah. which Cal was like, "Ooh, that's a whole <laughs> Even that's better. a whole <laughs> subplot there. You're a piece of shit. This is great news to me. I'm like literally this 22 year old kid limping at 11 11 p.m. out of a coffee bean, going home and crying. <laughs> I love how you sort of channel Cal when you give like his most. Oh! Oh boy. Oh, this is good. You have to understand, I'm telling for the first time to someone else my deepest, darkest pain points. And he goes, oh boy, this is juicy. <laughs> well, I have a quick question. What was in it for this guy? What happened is, you know how some people, they say things to make you feel like they're bigger than they are? And they, they can he get away with it. He wanted attention. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes to you and starts pushing it. Well, you are that big. Then you can get me to that And he person. never thought it would lead to this. I'm sure he was like... Well, yeah. this is good to acknowledge in the context of mentor-mentee relationship. Ah, this is actually very important. Because that that's the, the fake mentor. The, like maybe the person who – or the know, bad faith I, mentor. I know a lot of friends who end up with bad faith mentors. And it, or, you know, you open Instagram or Facebook. You, you're being advertised bad faith mentors through these information mm-hmm. products and courses mm-hmm. and – I, I don't even know what a bad faith mentor is. No, it's I, that guy Dan. No, that's oh, the, uh, I see what you're no, saying. You have someone who's not, right. but he, he someone who comes up on a kayak and right. says that. Look, that's predatory. You can call bad. Well, yeah, I, I never saw it that way. The way I saw it was he was pushed to defend 
his subterfuge and you kept on pushing and pushing. And so he would be in a position where his girlfriend would be next to him while Alex would ask. (laughs) And then he's, what is he going to say? No, I can't do it. He looks over at the girlfriend and the the girlfriend say, come on, you know, Warren. And he said, okay. And now he's in deeper and he can't get out. Do you see my shame even on my face right now? <laughs> it's been years. <laughs> but that's such a human thing. That's why Cal, I think, was wise for you to, to dredge that up. You know, because in a way, he was a puffed up mentor because you were doing the pumping, right? That, that you were you were on the bicycle pump trying to make him Correct. as artificially big as possible. But I think a kernel of this idea of the bad faith mentor, and maybe the bad faith mentor is too negative of a term to put it because... There's a certain generosity, but also a certain ego. No, there's there's two. There's there's. You think that they're separate? I I've in my experience because ever since the third door, I now have this swath of people that I can learn from that have either bad faith mentors who one are predatory, taking advantage of someone. Oh, come work for me for free. I'll mentor you, and you know they're sort of taking advantage of someone and not really who they say they are. But there's a other kind. That's actually a good faith mentor who's just a bad mentor hmm. who actually is giving wrong advice. Oh, man. I see that a lot, which is a good person. Two well-meaning people who are just giving each other bad bad advice. Like get a credit card. Put it on the credit card. and You know, oh. just like, you know, <laughs> not smart. I yeah. wonder if something we touched on earlier could be a fork in the road because there's the idea you ask somebody to be a mentor and they give you advice. And... The that, could be, has to, that could be a kernel of bad faith is that it's basically, oh, well, I'm a mentor now. And so I'm going to pontificate. I'm going, this person's going to sit at my feet and I'm going to teach them what I have to teach. Instead of just saying, well, tell me more about yourself. Who are you? What do you want? What are your talents? Show me your work. Um, what's, you know, do you like ice cream? Whatever. Um, sometimes maybe, and I'm curious to know what you think, Cal, sometimes the instinct, it's just a normal instinct to give advice when somebody comes in and asks for advice, right? But I wonder if the bad faith mentor is the is the person who keeps seeing themselves on that pedestal, mm. teaching to the person at their feet. And if the person at their feet keeps puffing them up so that they feel bigger and bigger and their girlfriend is looking over and, and is that part of the complication? Let's... I, and I've seen mentors become uh, jealous of a mentee or... Mm. If the mentee does well. and Yeah. I think a part of the mentor-mentee relationship that doesn't get talked about enough is the mentee needs to decide if the advice is good or not. Because I, I, one of the best things that I learned on my journey, but also uh, Sonia Sotomayor, the Supreme Court Justice, wrote a memoir where she said the best decision she ever made in her life was when her biggest mentor in life told her for example, something like, don't go into law. And she said, knowing when the mentor is wrong, the one out of a hundred times where the mentor is wrong is actually the make or break. Hmm. And there are times yeah. where you and Elliot, you know, there was... Oh, Elliot and I are very different people who are going to see the world hmm. completely different. Well, Elliot, I found to be very aphoristic. There's a lot of quotes, quotable quotes from Elliot in your book. Oh my God. He FaceTimed me this morning and probably said something that changed my life. This morning, I'll remember for the rest of my life. He's just that guy. He's a very, I've never met anyone like him. Well, this is good to acknowledge that he's sort of a different flavor, a different brand of mentor than Cal. And so there's, you have two 
mentors both good. You you had a bad experience with a mentor type person. And I want to just dig into the idea of what constitutes good mentorship because you mentioned the idea of knowing when to not take advice. But oftentimes as a teacher, sometimes the advice that the student doesn't want to take is, yeah, rewrite that for the fourth time. And so a student with too much ego will think, oh no, I'm I'm done. I don't I don't I don't write <laughs> rewrite this five times. So is there a way to know, is that an instinct thing? Like when you know when to and when not to take advice from a mentor? There were times where Elliot Bisno said, don't go to Omaha, don't send the shoe. And I said, this is my one out of a hundred, Elliot's wrong. <laughs> Dan, Dan is right, Dan knows Buffett. Mm -hmm. So I also have been wrong on my, you know, I don't have a perfect track record, but um, there are also times where Elliot told me quit my book and work with him. And I was like, that's wrong too. Um, well, that comes up in the book too. And that was in, that also felt cinematic. That basically the hero's journey and then here's the temptation to live a comfortable life, a, a, a more predictable life. It, that felt very narrative. And I don't know if that was Cal whispering in your ear, if that just made so much sense to include that aspect. But it basically got you off your mission. Here's this well-paying job with your mentor that allowed would have allowed you to quit your mission. The... Well, if your question is, how did I know that that was a big moment that should be in the book? Because that was a big moment that happened in my life on that yeah. journey. Yeah. It was, and this is before I met Cal, I genuinely was in crisis because everything I wanted was being offered to me in a way that didn't feel right. Um, and when you're 19, you're not equipped to make that decision. Um, so yeah, I, I was informed. Now this is, I didn't have any shame around that moment. I was proud of that moment. So that was included in the first draft. Uh, it was the moment that I was ashamed of, that I felt guilty of, that I was embarrassed of, that I hid from Cal. Right. And Cal had to pull out of me. So he was like the vulnerability whisperer for your, for your narrative. Yeah. And that was just questions. Okay. Why did this happen? And then what happened then? And then what happened? And, you know, pretty soon it led to vulnerable places. And then he, by the middle of the book, he caught on. Oh, yeah, now I get it. It, it works. And then you start looking for those vulnerable yeah. places. And then I no longer had to pull it out of him. He would come forward with them and like, hey, I got some presents here. <laughs> Let's open them up. Well, that's good to remember in a business context because it seems like the less likely we're taught, even before social media taught us to only show our best selves, you know, business culture is about showing your best face and not showing weakness in certain ways, which becomes not very narrative, which is probably why a lot of published business well, books are not particularly good. Bingo. And it's the hardest thing to convince a business person who's putting out their life story and is stepping up on the white steed in the shining armor to say, oh, I'm gonna show everybody when I was being pulled through the mud. But that's what makes a great book. Well, you, that's the yeah. question you have to ask them. And very honestly, do you want this to be a shiny brochure or do you want it to be a great book? And they'll think their answer is great book, but it's normally not. Did Cal teach you to wallow in the mud? Because there's this idea that 
Well, I didn't have to teach him. He was already in the mud. I had that instinct on my own. (laughs) Very much. I'm just thinking on the page, because one thing about the Warren Buffett chapter is the reader sort of suffers with you page after page in that. And this is a synopsis of what I had to live through. (laughs) Right. It was not a good time. But even within that business paradigm, it's like, okay, I'll salt in a little bit of vulnerability, but I don't really want to suffer on behalf of my reader. When in fact... The reader was with you, you know, beat after beat as as the flame out was happening in Omaha. Yeah, and I, I think what, what happened flame out in Omaha in that case is you start realizing how all of his friends were kind of in on the flame out too, hmm. and because they get up to ask Warren Buffett <laughs> questions, I love them in the big arena. You know, they figured out a way to hack to hack, yeah. We have photos and videos of it. It's crazy. They came to your aid, came to Omaha with you, and then they come along and you figure out a way to hack this lottery system. And now you're up in the rafters by a microphone and you have one of them like reading a question off paper as if they're in like fourth grade. Like, Mr. Buffett, do you think... And so now, if you're going to execute that, now you're taking down one of your friends who is in on this with you, and they have to come along. My friends are good sports, to be fair. To be, to give them a lot of and credit. Like, they're great guys, but you got to realize you're putting this in the book, and well, that's how okay. they're going to be perceived. This is a hard thing about literature that I had to come to grips with. Very hard part. It was a hard pill to swallow that Cal was telling me that I have to show my most uh, shameful, embarrassing parts of myself to the world. Hard pill to swallow, but I was willing to do it because I cared about the mission of this book so much. And the mission of this book was to help change what young people believed was possible. I could do that. It became, it was a whole nother battle to do the same thing with my mom's things yeah, that no, she was the most ashamed of my uh, father my sisters and my best friends hmm. even the guy dan i don't know if you remember i didn't want to even put him even though that's not his real name and we ch- i still didn't want to put him on that kind of spotlight well i think those sort of vulnerabilities are great for the reader too because one a lot of readers will identify with that because that's your humanity coming through going to Warren Buffett's place. And just so the listener knows, it's this great set piece where uh, Alex hacks this meeting to be able to get more questions for Warren Buffett, who he has not been able to interview in person on the floor of this meeting. And then the hack just sort of falls apart. You know, it's just a- a What, worse than falls apart, after a while, First of all, Warren Buffett figures it out from the stage. <laughs> they start like playing music to drown out any of these kids. And then as they're walking away, people are mocking him. Hmm. Yeah. And of course, I'm hearing this and thinking, ah, yes, yes, <laughs> this is beautiful because this is something that is going to make people feel empathetically we've all messed up we've all looked bad and and so i know now that he's just got the the hooks in the reader and they're going to keep coming along 
Where'd you learn your your vulnerability whispering? How did you know? How did you get your wisdom to be able to identify that when you were talking to Alex about his writing that wasn't quite there, then being you have that shoe story and you know was that developed over years or was there an epiphany? Yeah, I think it goes back to reading fiction as a kid. If something in fiction was really good, I couldn't stop reading. And if it didn't grab me, it couldn't make me read it. Hmm. It was just one or the other. And so I came to intuit that the whole idea is just to keep the reader riveted to the page. And if you can do that, you win. Did you read Dickens by chance when you were young? I love Dickens. I loved Dostoevsky. I loved even like O. Henry stories, Guy de Maupassant stories that just had these little flips with irony where you'd seen them do it 38 times before. It was the pretty diagnosable format, but you didn't know how they were going to do it. How are they going to flip it on you in the last minute? And they kept you reading to the last line. Yeah. And so that's the way I approach writing. When I first met Cal, Cal asked me to show him my first chapter of the book. And I showed it to him and he was telling me all the issues with it. And at some point when during Cal's critiques, I said, Cal, Cal, Cal. I don't think you know, but. 90% of people don't read beyond the first chapter of a business book. So I sort of have to put this in the first chapter. I put sort of like a pontification paragraph to tell people my thesis. And I'm like, I, I have to put that in there because no one's going to read past the first chapter. This is what's going to get tweeted. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I wrote a sentence that was like, uh, I was trying to like make it like a tweetable sentence. And he... <laughs> he rolled his eyes and I thought this guy doesn't get it <laughs> I'll admit I thought this guy this is a get off my lawn moment and I, huh. to admit I thought this is where his area of expertise stops because he doesn't understand the new world and it's true I did not and but, other people told me the same thing but I didn't understand the world hmm. I thought the world Cal was telling me about had ended. He was telling me about humanity. And the way humanity works is if you grip them, you grip them. It doesn't matter if it's digital or on paper. If you grip them, you grip them. I'm curious if how much of the conversation lent toward improvements in the book. Because when I teach writing classes, often we'll workshop a story when the author can't speak. And so the other students are speaking mm. out the book as if it's a book, book club and all they have are the words on the page. And the author is just jumping out of their skin trying to clarify things, but he didn't clarify them on the page, him or her. And then as soon as the author gets out of the bubble and is able to actually share what really happened, everybody's like, well, God damn it, why didn't you put that in the story? Right? <laughs> yeah. that, that basically the writer thought what he, was, he or she was supposed to write about, and that's what's on the page. And then we find out all that messy human stuff, and because nonfiction is what I workshop, that actually happened in real life. And so many times the mm. best part of the workshop is when the author gets out and realize they have permission to be ragged and vulnerable and completely right. humiliated on the page. So did you have conversations where you took a chapter and just started asking Alex um, what really happened? Yeah, there were some editing sessions where he didn't lift a pen. Okay. 
I would say every chapter, the first few, right? The first week or two, he wouldn't take a pen to the page. Yeah, I would just ask questions to get him to see where he was going. And in fact, very early, he did a chapter about meeting Sugar Ray Leonard. I knew you were going to bring it up. <laughs> and this was like, I'm a big boxing guy. and so Tell them the truth about this situation. Well, like I was at Sugar Ray Leonard's fights, so I completely knew this guy. And then Alex had this experience with him. And in the chapter, he was going to have to explain why this guy was important because nobody of his generation would have seen Leonard fight. So I thought, all right, this is my opportunity to really get him to understand how to write. Yeah, that's painful. And I made him like watch videos of these fights on YouTube that Leonard had and describe them. And then what happened from one fight to the next and the progression. And even though I knew that this is never going to be in the book. This is the most fucked up thing anyone's ever done to me. <laughs> you don't understand how much... You have to understand. I have six months to turn in my book. He's burning one whole month. <laughs> making... This is so fucked it's, up. This, this, making me watch it's YouTube true. videos from the 70s. Right. And writing boxing play-by-plays. <laughs> and submitting that to my editor. Knowing my editor will tell me this is unusable. And he's well, here's the thing. I didn't know that I felt bad about that when he said, like, oh, I sent it to my editor. And I'm thinking, oh no. He didn't oh, loot me in on the plan I, that yeah, this I is just training writing. Mr. Just, Miyagi head fake. This is you opening the cans of wax. Uh yeah. My editor wrote back, this would be great for an ESPN article. This is a business book. <laughs> I wrote three pages of play-by-play -play boxing commentary. <laughs> to the face Leonard comes in from the back hook to the jaw right to the gut oh is he out he's stumbling folks he's stumbling oh he rallies he rallies back to the ring Duran is looking worried he's fighting he's dancing around Leonard we don't know where this is going folks the bell rings this took uh, more, maybe more than a month for him to train me how to do this and what was the purpose in this? No, because thank you for asking he was going to have to use that skill when he got in front of Warren Buffett in Omaha. That's true. The shareholders meeting. We used at, that, at that meeting, he was going wow. to have to describe wow. the play-by-play -play that went down. I am realizing this right now. The Buffett Stadium was actually very similar to the Sugar Ray Leonard box. It was no different. The cheerleaders coming. And that was probably, in my opinion, one of the best paragraphs of the whole book literary-wise. There's a paragraph where it's a chaos there's a disco ball and cheerleaders and the YMCA going and the Gangnam style to show the Buffett. The Buffett shareholder. The meet. Buffett shareholders right. meet. And it was ridden with this tempo of a of the twelfth round of a heavyweight championship. And it was simple description. Wow. He's so funny. Of what up. is the best in, in the world in front of you. And then like looking to the left, looking to the right, this is what's going on. So I had to get him to a point. Visual action. Where, yeah, he could look at mm -hmm. something and describe it. 
in a way that made you feel like he was there. Like the reader was there too. Yeah. Put the reader in the scene. He was teaching me how to write adrenaline pumping prose. Without doing that exercise, he wouldn't have been able to do any of the chapters that were coming. I couldn't tell him, look, you have to practice. Well, I wouldn't have done it if you told me that. Yeah, that's why Mm -hmm. I wouldn't. I did it because I I thought this was going to be in the book, so I did it. Because he would have never let me take a month of his time. No. But if we hadn't taken that month, then he never would have been able to move forward because you need to be able to describe what's in front of you if you're going to write a book. It's interesting. And when I look at what he taught me, very different approach. It was like, this is the world we live in. Get used to it. He's saying this. Yeah, he's saying, this is Twitter. And I'm saying like... I wasn't a mentor to him. To me, it almost felt like a kid telling his dad, dad, you know, wake up. And I was like, I'll do it. Give it to me. Give it to me. Yeah, that's right. I'm pulling out my phone and I just hand it over to him. Right. So like with the writing, it was this very thoughtful mentor relationship. On the reverse, it was very much like, just, okay, just get, send me, send me the password. I'll do it. You know? Yeah. yeah. But I think that's only, that's only instructive for you, Cal, if you're open to it being instructive, you know, that basically if, if you, I think there's a point at which you realize you had a lot to learn from Alex and had you been on your pedestal, uh, handing lessons down, then you wouldn't have gotten as much out of the relationship. Oh, a million percent. And I, I think I realized pretty early even in that first conversation, which is why there was a second, that he had a lot to bring. And only as time passed did I see the plethora of gifts that were being bestowed on me. And I I don't even know that he knew it, but he was making me look at the world very differently because, you know, keep in mind, like everything changed after the Great Recession started in 08. Uh, just the, the amount like a writer could earn working for a magazine or even writing books. It was completely different in 09 and 10. And so you're starting to see this world that you thought you were at the top of is slowly swirling away. All of a sudden you see this whole world where that Alex introduced me to, where speakers go up at conferences and they're paid really well. And not only that, not only that, but when you were writing those stories, you had to write a new one every time. Once you had your one speech, all you had to do was go up and give it again, and you got paid again. Yeah. Well, this feels like an essential lesson of this conversation in that we've reached a stage in history where mentors really need mentees, you know, especially younger of a younger generation. It's funny, I was, I had lunch before I came here. I had brunch with a former writing student who's been doing some great stuff, travel stuff for YouTube. And I was marveling at my nephew's um, TikTok videos, which are 15 seconds long or less. And I'm here, this is amazing. And he's here. Yeah. You know, it's beginning, middle, middle end. You know, that's, you talked about that when you taught class and it's like, 
Oh, yeah. You know, there's basically, there's sort of this unfrozen caveman lawyer, a reference you might not get, but you might get, um, thing to discovering new technology. And I was just so amazed by this new technology, not realizing that part of what makes my nephew's TikTok brilliant is that he's actually using storytelling principles that have always been used. Well, that's, the middle end. that is the beauty of the whole thing. Every business needs this now. Every business is going to become its own media empire. And if you can't tell your story, well, don't depend on anybody else to come in and tell it for you. So there's a huge need for all these skills. That was the grand epiphany for me. Where are you putting your talent? Where are you throwing your skills? And what Alex showed to me as an entrepreneur was, there's no ceilings. Nobody is telling you it's 10 cents a word or a dollar a word. It's whatever people need and have the willingness to pay, that's what you're worth. So going from that very scary position after 08 to a position of, and this is the biggest lesson Alex taught me, there are no ceilings. There are infinite possibilities. And I am free to discover them all. Let's try and list best strategies for being a mentor or being a mentee, what you need to remember. Because it sounds like one tick on Cal's list would be ask questions because maybe some mentors who may be in good faith don't, don't realize that they are allowed to ask this young person questions. So why don't you take the how to be a mentor and I'll take the mentee? Yeah, but you can you can add to each other's okay, lists. Great. Right. Um, but basically, we'll use a Tim Ferriss phrase. I think this is a Tim Ferriss phrase. Best practices. Best practices for mentees and for mentors. Uh, Cal, you have seniority here, so I'll let you start. Well, to me, it's, it really comes down to three things. One, ask questions. Two, listen to the answers. Mm, people forget that one. And three, use stories to explain your points so that you're not giving advice. You're telling somebody a story that is giving them advice. So it's not you advising. It's the story that's advising. That really kind of sums it up for me. I'd add to Cal's list for a mentor. Um, don't be afraid to show your mentee who you really are and what you're struggling with because you never know when the mentee might be able to help. Yeah, that's that's huge. I It wasn't in the first meeting where I started helping Cal. You know, it was maybe a month or two in when I started hearing, you know, that the magazine industry was coming down and I was so grateful for him. I wanted to just, I felt like I had this karmic debt, you know, hmm. even though th that wasn't implied at all. I just was so grateful for him. I just wanted to help somebody I cared about. I was grateful for. So yeah, don't be like, at, at the time, basically the, uh, I remember the editor of Esquire calling me and say, you know, we're, we're having a really tough time. And, uh, you know, they didn't know if they're going to have to like lay people off. And I would say, well, just like take it out of my salary. I don't know where it's going. And then you meet somebody 
who is crazy enough to think that he can like write a book that will be loved around the world without like knowing how to end a paragraph with the right sentence. And so that was a you, minor detail in my grand plan. <laughs> you 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 can take some of that young whether you want to call it courage or sense of delusion what whatever it is it's a beautiful thing which starts to fade away over time and to grasp it back like when you're in your 50s mm. is nice like you you start thinking hey anything is possible whereas a lot of the people around me they didn't think that at all they just thought this is done and they either retired or they left what they were doing and it it, it ended badly for them so it sounds that like there's an extent to which that if you were the guy on the pedestal handing down lessons, you wouldn't have opened yourself up mm. to that. And maybe that's a personality, a cow personality type thing, but do either of you have any advice for how to preempt that ego that could get in the way of a two-way relationship, mentor-mentee? Listening is so important. And if you sense that somebody is not listening to you, I think things break down. So if the air quotes mentor doesn't seem to be really listening to you as they pontificate, then maybe... That's should... fine, though. Okay. That's a person who you can get advice from every now and then, and that's a great relationship, too. It's a different kind of relationship. Right. If you're looking for that life mentor, first of all, you can't plan it. And that, if we almost want to switch to the mentee listicle, the first thing I would say is you can't plan it. You can't, yeah, you left. cannot plan to find your cow or your Elliot business. You can't, I tried, I tried, I really tried really hard at a list of people who I was adamant would be the people who would change my life. And I was wrong because I didn't understand. Just because you read about someone in an article or you watch a YouTube video, you don't know them. You don't know what their light you don't know anything. So the first piece of advice I'd give for a mentee who wants to get a mentor is be committed but not attached. Be committed to putting yourself out there. Be committed to asking for help. Be committed to reaching out. Don't be attached to a single person. Uh, second piece of advice is just through the third door, I was lucky enough to meet the most famous people on earth. I was also lucky enough to meet some of the wise people on earth who no, no one's ever heard of. The mentors that changed my life were the latter. Uh, I am extremely grateful, I wouldn't trade for anything, the interaction I had with the former. Um, Bill Gates, even if he loves you, it's very unlikely that he will sit down for you three hours a night at a coffee bean for three years in a row. So is, is yeah. it the wisdom or the willingness to sit down with you? Um, there's both. What I would say, though, is if you want a real mentor, someone in your day-to-day -day life that guides you, 
Um, if that person, you know, I probably wouldn't have been able to create that relationship with Cal at this point in his life. Yeah, that's right. Because now I'm traveling all over the place. Right? He's I'm been, not here. Right. He has a lot of incoming career. He has a yeah. lot. Of, he has a lot of incoming energy now. Um, so yeah, I, it was just the right time uh, in in both ways. Because when he tells me, "Look, Cal, nobody is going to read past the first chapter of this book," so I just need to put this line in here so I can tweet it out. He loves this. He loves. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm listening really carefully because, like, where is this going? Yeah, he's not writing to his meeting in ten minutes, what, right? What, like, what is this? Where does this go? And if he's thinking this, does everybody around him think like this? And I mean, that that's why I really think at the bottom of it all, it's the listening that's the most important component to it on both sides. And the final thing I'll add to my list is do not ask them to be your mentor. Do not utter the word mentor. And it's the biggest mistake people make is they, uh, and I made it, which is why I know it. I don't know if you know this. I don't think I ever used the word, I did it on purpose. I never used the word mentor maybe in the first year of our friendship because it's a scary word for someone who's successful and has a lot of demands on their time to hear that word. It's like going on a first date and Speaking about marriage, <laughs> and, or That's or saying funny. even calling a someone you're on a first date with my potential spouse. <laughs> um, it right. even for this episode, right? That's a good even one. if it's a great relationship, just that heaviness makes someone back away. And I remember when I was 18 years old, I asked someone, "Will you be my mentor?" And he looked and said, "No," because that's anyone's logical answer. If they say yes, that's actually a red flag. If they just met you and they say yes, it's a red flag that that's probably not a good mentor. Because <laughs> a good mentor doesn't want to spend all their time with you know holding your hand. Um, the way a mentor relationship should work, from my experience, is you ask them. And actually, Bill Gates, when I interviewed him, uh, sort of touched on this too, that he did this too. You start off with a small question might be, what books do you recommend? You know, Tim Ferriss did the same with you. What do you recommend I do, right? Um, with Cal, he was not looking at any of my writing material, maybe until the three weeks into the friendship. Um, you're asking questions and you're building a relationship with them. And it might start off very small. Start off with a five-minute meeting, 10-minute, 30-minute out. Cal just so happened to start off long. And then a mentor, the word mentor should be used in hindsight when talking about gratitude. Hmm. When you're writing a thank you letter to them six months and saying, dear Cal, I just wanted to say how much you've changed my life. Um, you've been more than a friend, but a mentor. You know, it's a, it's a word of gratitude, not a word of commitment. Well, I love the marriage metaphor because it makes so much sense because you need to vet a marriage partner, you know? Even in cultures where marriages are arranged, you know, there's there's uh, actually a process whereby they get to know each other. So why would it make sense for somebody right. to say, I would like a mentor, please, when in fact, how right. do you know that you have chemistry with that person as a mentor? How do you know that they have strengths that can sort of counterbalance your shortcomings? Yeah. You know, it feels like that's a great metaphor. The fifth thing on the list is the most important because it's the most easily uh, forgotten which is the mentor is an investor of capital 
in the sense of they're investing time in a startup, which is the mentee. The mentor will start with a small angel investment of 10 minutes, an hour, and they'll see what the ROI is of that hour. Whether it was Cal or Elliot or anyone else that became a mentor, they invest time and they'll see what happened. It's your job as the mentee, as the startup, to send them, and I'm using, for anyone out here, this is a clear analogy, this is not literal, but to send them a report of the ROI of their capital. <laughs> Again, I'm making it clear. If there's any young Alex's out there, this is a figurative, this is not literal, but to send them an ROI on the capital invested. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because I realized this on my own, but Bill Gates did the exact same thing. I'll, now I'll use Bill Gates' terminology. You want the mentor to create a mental model that you are a good use of time. So Bill Gates gave me an example that he did when he was 19 or 20 or 21, when he was getting, you know, relationships with people at IBM to sell them, you know, billion dollars of software. He would ask them, what books do you recommend? They would recommend three books. An average person would think that would take an average person about a month. Bill would purposely read all three in a week, write them back or call them up saying, God bless you. You know, I never would have thought that that book would teach me this. This one taught me that. I'm so grateful. And that's it. No ask. Just I'm so... What is anyone in their right mind going to think when they hang up the phone? That was a good use of 30 seconds of my advice because I just changed this kid's life. You want to be a good investment. And the way to do that is if they ask you to run a mile, you run 10 miles and you say thank you. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. And I guess the ROI was in the writing because you would start to see it improve. And then you would know, okay, he can go on to the next chapter, even knowing he's going to have to go back and rewrite it again. But you saw the development. Now we're ready for the next step. And so it becomes fun. You're watching a work in progress. And if you love stories... You're delighted by the way it's coming out. And the other thing was, I didn't know how it was going to end because it was a work in progress. So like, after you hear the shoe story, like you want to know how all this is going to end up. And that's the power of great story. I'll put a bonus six one, but this is a bonus because it's tricky and it's hard to do. Try to know what they want. Some mentors, even big CEOs who are billionaires, are looking for some fulfillment in their life. That might be what they're looking for. Some, like Cal, are almost looking for their next adventure, whether he knew it or not. Um, there were people at Larry King's Breakfast, well, I was teaching them how to use their iPads. That's all they wanted. That was Barry. That's all he wanted. <laughs> Try to put yourself in their shoes. That's the bonus one. I love that as a kid. I was... At Larry King's table, teaching people how to use their iPads. Oh, we had a table of 75-year-olds, 80-year-olds. Yeah. Oh, Barry, when he discovered that iPads had internet, he was blown away. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. 
And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviatedrolfpots.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music, and you can find links to Cedar's album Lumber in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.